guys want to turn to Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Uh, open up your Bibles or turn on your phones. So behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had not done, uh, had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, he has put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we just want to confess to you this morning that uh, oftentimes we are distracted. Um, oftentimes we forget you. Oftentimes we willfully turn away from you, God. But Lord, we thank you because you are so kind and patient and merciful towards us. Lord, I pray that our confidence would rest in your work, uh, not in the performance that we try to do to perhaps propel ourselves towards you, God. Um, but our hope is found in the fact that you have come for us. Lord, I ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Uh, would you be so kind and so gracious as to use me? Would you use us, Lord? Uh, to further your kingdom, to do your will, 
uh, just to love you and honor you, God. Uh, Lord, we love you. Would you please bless our time this morning? And it's it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so thus far in Isaiah, we have been looking at uh, how this book is shaping expectations, the expectations that we should have for our Savior. Uh, So, so far we've seen in Isaiah that Jesus is our God, Jesus is our King, and today we're going to see how Isaiah shapes our expectations for Jesus as our priest. Uh, And just like we can say with confidence that Jesus is God and that Jesus is King, uh, my hope and my prayer that at the end of the day today, we can say with equal confidence that Jesus is my high priest as well. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I love this topic, why I love this text so much, um, why I love Jesus' priestly work so much, uh, is because it gets straight to the heart of the gospel. Um, and you know what? I am insufficient to tell you all of the implications and all the full weight of the gospel, but thankfully I'll have more tries in the future. Um, But I'm going to do my best today to explain to you how this text teaches us right, what what is right at the heart of the gospel. My old pastor, he used to tell a story about when he was a teenager. He was uh, at a camp and he was put on the spot to share a message before all the other campers. Um, and so he's put on the spot, and he's like, he asks his coach, well, what am I supposed to talk about when I get up there? And his coach tells him, talk about Jesus and talk for about 30 minutes. Um, That, I think, is a perfect summary of what preaching is all about. Um, Sorry to make it seem so simple, but I will have those Two things in my mind as guardrails for as long as I do this. If I'm preaching, I'm going to talk about Jesus, and I'm going to talk for hopefully about 30 minutes. That's the goal. Um, And the reason why this is so essential to our lives, so essential to preaching, is for the simple fact that we need Jesus. Uh, We are sinners in need of a Savior, and no matter how well we might think we're doing, uh, you know, no matter how much we've grown, how good we're doing at our spiritual disciplines, uh, how, how positive things seem to be going for us, we still at the end of the day, need Jesus, even thing, even if things are going our way, even if we think we're doing a good job. And on the flip side of that, Regardless of how poorly we're doing, of how many burdens we have throughout our week, of how difficult and painful at times it is, uh, we need Jesus, right? We don't need to come here and be told 10 steps on how to become better versions of ourselves, right? That's, what we, that's not what we need when we have a difficult week. What we need when things are going poorly is Jesus Christ, no matter how high, no matter how low, we need Jesus. We are broken sinners. We are inclined towards all sorts of evil. So the point is that we desperately need Jesus Christ no matter where we are at 
in the Christian walk. We never move beyond the gospel. We just learn to enjoy more and more of its depth. So church, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is the most beautiful, magnificent thing that the eyes of my heart have ever gazed upon. He is absolutely splendid, righteous, perfect. And his beauty, his magnificence, it's actually revealed to us in quite an interesting kind of way. And that is through the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, Paul is addressing his congregation in Corinth, and he says to them, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here Paul says that to those who are called, to those who are chosen, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now what what on earth does that mean? Well, it means that salvation belongs to the Lord. Without God's call on your life, without his call on our lives, without his choosing, we cannot see Christ as he is, the power and wisdom of God. Without God at work, you cannot see the magnificence of Jesus. God is sovereign over dead, blind, wicked hearts. And yeah, it might be a little insulting to hear that you don't have the inherent capacity to recognize who Jesus is, even though he's the most glorious individual in existence. But this really is good news. We just need to admit that we are lost, helpless, hopeless causes without God mercifully working in our hearts. And thankfully, praise God, he is at work. He is faithful. It is this truth about Christ crucified that is so intricately foretold in this text in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. This is the promise of Christ crucified in the Old Testament. Now, is anyone here familiar with the hymn, Man of Sorrows? Yeah, it's also called, What a Savior, right? Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. The words of this hymn do an excellent job of of capturing what lies at the heart of our text this morning and what lies at the heart of Christ's work. And that, in a word, is atonement. When we're talking about uh, preaching Christ crucified, we are talking about the atonement. Atonement is how God reclaims ruined sinners like us. So our main point, the main point of this text this morning is that God reclaims his people through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. 
Very straightforward. God reclaims his people through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Two points that will help us examine this text. One, the servant's purpose, and two, the servant's identity. So continuing with point number one here. What we want to note about the servant's purpose is that it really is a priestly purpose. There's a ton of priestly language being used in this passage right here. And in fact, the atonement, atonement was the goal of the Old Testament priesthood, right? That is what their mission was. It was to make atonement for the people of Israel. So I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this point, but I do want to draw some parallels between what we see in the book of Leviticus, in the, in the priesthood, and what we see right here in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, because this really is something that was foundational to the existence of God's people in the Old Testament. So I won't make you flip through your Bibles or anything like that, but we want to note that in both cases, in the case of the servant and in the case of the Old Testament priesthood, um, there is an offering that is provided. You think about the Passover, the Passover lamb, and the servant right here in this text is compared to a spotless lamb. So in both cases, we have an offering Um, In both cases, we see that priestly actions are performed. So we saw that the servant, he sprinkles the nations, right? Just like a priest would sprinkle someone or something with blood to cleanse it, to cleanse that person. So priestly actions are performed in both cases. Um, Both the servant... And the high priest in Israel, they were tasked with making intercession for the people. The servant makes intercession for his people, and the high priest of Israel, that was one of his main jobs, was to pray for his people and make intercession for them. And then, of course, the servant provides atonement. He takes away the penalty of sin. And again, that was the whole goal of the Old Testament priesthood, is that they were tasked with atoning for the sins of the people, right? They had, like, their most important day on their calendar was the Day of Atonement, where they would, as the name implies, atone for the sins of the people. So what Isaiah reveals to us here, what he shows us, is that the whole priestly enterprise is mounted onto one figure, right? The whole thing is going to be completed by one person, And that's the expectation. That's the expectation that's being built up, is that someone is going to finish it, to complete every part of it. He's not leaving anything out. He's going to finish the whole thing. And, you know, when I compare that to the expectation that was built up for me, it's so different, way different. Uh, When, you know, my early years, the early years of my Christian life, uh, the expectation that was built up for me is, uh, Vince, you need to have more zeal. You need to have more faith. Like you need to be on fire. Be on fire for God and then everything else will fall into place. Right? Just do that and then you're really walking the Christian walk. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah, that is, you know, I had good people around me, but that is really all I heard that I needed to be on fire for the Lord. So what happened when, when I wasn't feeling that way? Like if it, wasn't, it just wasn't clicking for me or if I was struggling, 
Okay, what's happening to my expectation then? But there's a, an entirely different expectation that's being built up in the Old Testament. For the people of God in the Old Testament, the expectation was for God to reclaim ruined sinners through the priestly work of atonement. It was the fact that God is coming for me, not I'm somehow going to reach God. That was the expectation that was being built up. So I think we miss out if we don't see how foundational all this priestly language is to the text. The servant is accomplishing something here that was foreshadowed in this central institution, this primary institution in Israel. And again, that is atonement. Now, the word atonement, it's not part of our everyday vocabulary. So just as a a quick recap, atonement. When we see this in the Bible, this is what we should be thinking. Atonement is the satisfaction of God's wrath through a substitution. Or we could say that atonement is the satisfaction of God's wrath through an exchange. Substituting something, exchanging something. And what I hope we are able to see by the end of this morning is that this is, number one, how God saves us. It is how God reclaims ruined sinners. And it is how God loved us. It is how he showed his love for us. And, you know, I really think it's different to think about how someone loves you versus just being told that information, right? That someone loves you. So if I think about, like my wife, for example, if I think about how she loves me, um, I can see that she is far more concerned for my health and my well-being than I am. Like it shows up in so many things that she does, like in the way that uh, she cooks and and provides meals for us, the way that she tries to like take stressful things off of my plate, like she is it is so evident for me to see that she is way more concerned about my well-being than than I am. I can see that uh, in her insistence to do things together as a family, no matter how busy the season is, like no matter how inefficient it may be, her insistence to do things together as a family, it shows me that, that she is committed. She is Uh, all about, like, her desire is to build a life with me, not away from me, not apart from me. We're not doing things in separate camps. And, you know, we might have seasons where things are busy and obligations tend to pull us apart that way, but even in the busy seasons, she's insisting that we do things together as a family. All right, that is how she loves me. Uh, When I think about my children, you know, I could be having the most annoying day possible. Like, I'm not being productive, like things are just going blank in my head, Um, everything's taking too much time, there's too much traffic on the road, it's raining, I'm wet, it's cold, it's miserable, all of it, right? I could just be having a miserable day and I walk through the door and I'm grumpy and I'm impatient and this is how my kids love me. They don't care about that. I walk through the door, how much does that matter to them? It doesn't matter a a bit. They're excited to see me either way. And I might even lose my patience with them because I've just, 
can't control my emotions, right? Uh, but even when I lose my patience with them, they're so quick to show me affection and just be excited to hang out with their dad. That is how they love me. So before we go any further, I just want you guys to take a minute and think about someone who loves you and think about how they love you. Think about how they display and express their love for you. So you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about it and I want you to hold that thought in your head. Church, Christ's work of atonement is how God showed his love for us. It is how he loves us. And we'll see this more as we work through the text. So if you take a look at verses 4 through 6, right, this elaborates on our basic definition of atonement. We see that the servant has borne our grief. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He suffered the chastisement that brought us peace. And we see that his wounds healed us. So over and over and over again, we see this inverse relationship between us and the servant. It was our grief, our transgression, our iniquities, our sickness, right? That is what we bring to the table. Sin and suffering and sickness and death. But who has to deal with it? Who has to suffer for it? According to Isaiah chapter 53, God's servant does. He suffers, we benefit. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, all the sin, all the wrong, all the pain, all the punishment. We've earned all that. It rightfully belongs to us, yet he takes all of it. And he didn't deserve this, right? He didn't deserve to be crushed, wounded, chastised. The servant was blameless. Verse 11 tells us that the servant God considered him to be the righteous one. All right, what do the righteous deserve? They deserve life. They deserve to inherit life in God's kingdom. Yet he poured out his soul to death. No wonder he is called man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. That is atonement. In my place. That is where Jesus stood. Isaiah's prophecy is about God's Son who stood in our place, substituted himself uh, for us to take our sins. And you know what? Jesus claims this very exact thing in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We have it up on the screen. For even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, he came as the servant and to give his life as a ransom. That's a fancy word for exchange. He gave his life as an exchange for many. Jesus Christ, God's servant, innocent and righteous, stepped in on our behalf, stood in our place as the substitute for our punishment. And amazingly, he does not only bear our sin and put it to death, but he makes us counted as righteous before God. So when we talk about atonement, we need to understand that atonement is not just about the removal of sin, but it is about the positive accounting of righteousness. You see, sacrificial animals in Israel were supposed to be physically spotless because God's people were not morally spotless. And so what is implicit in this entire act of sacrifice, this whole, sacri- whole sacrificial system, uh, is that the sinfulness of the worshiper is being put to death in the animal and that the spotlessness of the animal is being credited to the worshiper. In the whole act with the laying on of hands on the animal and the, the shedding of the blood and the pleasing aroma before God, it implies that the death of the animal counted for the worshiper and the spotlessness of the animal counts uh, for the person who made that sacrifice. That is what is implicit and that exchange is made explicit right here in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, which says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The task of the servant was not only to bear the iniquities of his people, but to make them accounted righteous. It wasn't to work with them, It wasn't to provide like 90% of the righteousness so that we might do the rest. No, the work of God's servant was to make us counted as righteous in the eyes of God. He gave his life for our transgressions and he gave us his righteousness so that we could have the full favor of God for eternity. I mean, what kind of exchange is that? You see, the work of the servant gives us a different kind of confidence about God's love for us. Because the primary way, the primary reason we can know that Jesus loves us is not because we've been told that information. It's not because Jesus told us about his feelings. But it's because he gave and he gave and he gave until he had nothing left to give. He gave us everything, all that he had. That is how he loved us. And oh, how he loved us. It's different to think about how someone loves you versus just being told that information that they love you. The atonement is how God has reclaimed his people. It's how he loved us. So I just want to summarize here what we've seen about the atonement in Isaiah chapter 53. 
And we can see this uh, in verse 11, that the summary statement that the text provides. But just to put it into two parts here. When we think about the atonement, number one, we can say, in my place, condemned he stood. And number two, we can say, in his place, I am counted righteous. I mean, that is an incredible thing. It is an incredible gift. And this brings us to our last point, the identity of the servant. Now, you might be thinking that this is kind of a weird second point because we know the identity of the servant. It's Jesus. We were just talking about it. But what I want us to focus on here is how Isaiah reveals the identity of the servant within a particular context. And that is the context of God's decree of judgment, his judicial sentencing, you could say. Because you see, the book of Isaiah is shaped by something very significant that happens towards the beginning. Okay, and we were in this text a couple weeks ago, but Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. He sees God on his throne. Okay, and this really is a courtroom setting. Here we see God as judge. And of course, Isaiah is scared out of his mind. When he sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, I am undone. And that is because he's expecting a sentence of condemnation. He's before the judge, standing before the judge, and you know what? He's not expecting the judge to congratulate him for his good behavior. He's not expecting the judge to sing his praises, but he's expecting a sentence of condemnation because he, he confesses, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's expecting a judicial sentence against him and the people that he is a part of. But amazingly, Isaiah is not condemned. Rather, he is commissioned to be a messenger of this decree of judgment. And that decree is in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Let me read that for us real quick. So God says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. All right, that right there is the sentence of judgment. That's the sentencing that the judge has issued. He's making it so that the people become blind and dumb and deaf so that they don't turn back to him. Right? The point is that he's going to exercise the full force of his judgment on them. So when we're confronted by this, we're left with the question, like when is this judgment of blindness, deafness, and dumbness, when is it going to end? Or in other words, who can take it away? The hand of the Lord is outstretched in judgment. Who can turn it back? 
Who can satisfy the justice of the Lord? And the answer is only the Lord himself. It is up to him whether or not to show mercy. It belongs to him. That is his right as the God and king of this universe. And praise God, he shows us mercy in the servant. There's an interesting detail in the book of Isaiah. This phrase that we see high and lifted up, like in in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Well, this phrase is only ever used to to describe God and the servant. Okay, that is a designation that only they have. Only the servant is high and lifted up, and only God is high and lifted up. And so what's going on here is we see this Old Testament shadow that the servant is identified with the judge. Okay, that is what Isaiah is hinting at by using this exclusive term for both uh, God and the servant. And guess who picks up on this foreshadowing? The Apostle John. Uh, we were in this text a couple weeks ago, but it's worth going over again. So would you turn with me to John chapter 12? We're going to read through verses 37 through 41. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, And here's the quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, what I want us to take note of here is that uh, John is, he's like combining contexts from Isaiah. So if you look at verse 38, that first quotation in this passage, that is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is about God's servant. And then his second quotation is from Isaiah chapter 6, which is about God reigning as king. Now, pay attention to the conclusion. He, He gives us these quotes. He gives us these quotes as an explanation of this event that is happening here. And then there's his conclusion in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, I know we all know this, but I want to walk through it again. Whose glory did Isaiah see in Isaiah chapter 6? God's, right? He saw the glory of the Lord. He saw God high and lifted up. Now, according to the book of John, verse 41, whose glory did Isaiah see? Jesus's. Yes. Okay, so this passage 
begins by describing this event, the event of Jesus leaving the crowds because of their unbelief, right? That is, that's simply stating that is what happened. That's what happened in this event. And then we're given an explanation of why it happened, which is where the quotations come in. And then we're given a conclusion at the very end again, when John says, Isaiah said these things, referring to the quotation from uh, chapter 53 and chapter 6, because he saw his, that is, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. In other words, Jesus' glory is revealed in the context of both the servant and the king. And you know, when you think about it, it is really nothing less than shocking to see what is going on here. Because what John is telling us is that the same God who judges is the same God who takes the judgment. The judge pays the penalty. The king ransoms the very subjects who committed treason against him. Since when? Since when does that happen? God the king deserves nothing other than praise and glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Even the sun runs its course through the sky with joy to glorify the one who made it. There is one thing that God deserves. Praise. And there is one thing that we deserve. Death. For the wages of sin is death. It is what we have earned for ourselves. Yet God is so unbelievably kind that he would suffer the ruin of his own sentence against sinners to save them. You see, the Bible tells us about a God who is triune. That's a big, scary theology word. But it presents us with one God in three persons who are the same in substance, they are the same in being, and they are equal in power and glory. So when we think about Jesus Christ, when we think about the Son and his work on the cross, let's not be sub-Trinitarian. It was the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the God who deserves all of our praise that went to the cross. There weren't two persons, you know, one God and one man, and then it's just the man that goes to the cross and dies. There was one person, Jesus, God and man. In Jesus Christ, God the Son bore the penalty of his own justice to save sinners like me and you. Man of sorrows. What a name for God the Son. Lifted up was he to die 
it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what can we say but thank you? Thank you for the son that you have sent to us. God, thank you for coming to get us, your lost sheep, your lost children. When we were disinterested or rebellious, running away from you, God, thank you for coming to rescue us. Thank you for coming uh, to bring us into your family and into your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you. God, I pray that uh, we would have lives marked by gratitude and thankfulness, no matter how distracted we might get, no matter how busy we might get. Lord, I pray that uh, we would always have hearts marked uh, with thankfulness to you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, I ask that you would bless my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Would you continue to draw us to yourself, help us to know you more, and grow in the grace and knowledge of you. God, again, we thank you. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.